Good morning. Welcome to this breakout session on common conditions and emergencies in pediatrics. It is my distinct pleasure and honor to present this topic to you during this conference. I know we would all have desired to be together in person, but thank God for this alternate platform that allows us to still get together. My name is Olubukola Ojuola, otherwise called Buki. I am an assistant professor and chair of pediatrics division at Liberty University College of Osteopathic Medicine, and I am looking forward to a wonderful time that we'll share together today by the grace of God. This slide highlights the objectives for this session, and in the upcoming slide, I'm going to go into more details on how we're going to accomplish these um, objectives in this session. Our agenda today will include reviewing the global mortality and morbidity statistics as it relates to children age five years and under, the most vulnerable age group for childhood mortality and morbidity. In addition, we will dive in details into specific illnesses and emergencies. In this same age group, we're gonna draw from cases that I've encountered in my experience in different parts of the world have had the opportunity to serve and practice. Additionally, we're gonna review tips on how to create simple evidence-based treatment protocols for the team that you're going to inherit or develop or that you're gonna work with as a missionary physician or healthcare worker in resource-poor communities. Lastly, we will spend time highlighting the effect of maternal education on child survival. So I'm going to take you around all the different places I've had the opportunity to be. We're going to look at what are the experiences that I have drawn from the field and how that can serve you in your position as a missionary, wherever you are, you have the opportunity to, to serve. So let's look at global statistics. In 2009, about 5.2 million children under five years died. And the majority of them were from preventable and treatable causes. 2.5 million of those deaths occurred in the first 28 days of life of those children. Another 1.3 million deaths occurred between the first and fourth year of life while 1.5 million occurred in the first year of those children's lives. This is way too many deaths in our current time. This is a graphic that illustrates the trend over time. So thankfully, there's been a significant decline in mortality rates between 1990 and 2019, but there's still a lot of work to be done, especially when you look at the second line the lower line that indicates neonatal mortality, it's almost a flat line. There's not a whole lot of um, improvement that we have recorded globally in this particular age group. So looking at the geographic distribution of this deaths, you find out that Sub-Saharan Africa and Central and Southern Asia are overrepresented in this, in this um, statistics, over 80% of the deaths reported in 2019 occurred in this region, even though only about half of the children under age five years of life in the world live in these two regions. When we bring it closer home, you find out that about 50% of all under five deaths in 2009 occurred in five countries. And in fact, Nigeria and India alone accounted for about a third of those deaths that occurred in 2019. Looking at this um, graph, this is from 2015 um, report. It's, it's good news in the sense that we don't have any region with mortality rate above 200 
that is a whole lot of gain that has been um, achieved between 1990 and 2015. Well, you see that this graph shows us distribution, again, mirroring what I had spoken about in the previous slide, where we still have significant mortality in children under five in sub-Saharan Africa and Southern and Central Asia. So what are these children dying from? I have put this in three main categories and the pie chart gives even more details within these categories. So like we already established, neonatal disorders are top leading causes, uh, cause of death in children. And within that bracket, you find that preterm delivery, birth asphyxia or trauma and congenital anomalies are the top reasons that children die in the first 28 days of life. Malnutrition. In the sense of undernutrition, because malnutrition encompasses both under and overnutrition, in, the, in this particular instance, we are talking about undernutrition as an underlying condition that impacts child survival significantly, and we'll talk about that in more details further down. The last group, as you would have expected, are the infectious diseases. Malaria stands out, pneumonia and diarrhea, meningitis, meningococcal meningitis in particular, as well as measles, are the leading infectious diseases that children succumb to in the first five years of life. This takes me on to speak briefly about the Sustainable Development Goals that were adopted by United Nations in 2015. This was put together in an attempt to promote healthy lives and well-being for all children all over the world. And 3.2.1 is what is focused on children, particularly newborns and those under five years of age. So the targets, ambitious as they are, but not unreasonable, is to reduce newborn mortality to as low as 12 per 1,000 life births in every country and to reduce under five mortality to as low as 25 per 1,000 life births in every country. I'm going to invite you on a journey with me to the different places where I've had opportunity to practice. So this is a map of Nigeria for those of you who may not know, with a flag and, and the national colors displayed. I was born and raised in Nigeria and got my medical degree from University of Ilori in Nigeria. And I had the opportunity to provide care for, um, for families and for children as a medical officer as well as a pediatric resident. So I'm gonna take you to the health facility, a typical health facility where we will be taking um, a first case scenario from. So you see, as a sleeping or ill-appearing child that would say is about between a year and two years of age brought in by the mother because he had had a high fever for two days with shaking chills and he now is not taking much in by mouth. What would be one of the top things that will come up in your mind as a differential diagnosis? You got it. Malaria. Malaria is endemic in the most most countries in West Africa and definitely in Nigeria. So let's talk a little bit about malaria. The statistics don't look very good because it's reported that every two minutes a child dies of malaria. About 228 million cases of malaria were reported in 2018 all over the world, and over 400 deaths occurred from the disease. Again, we see that children under five years are overrepresented with two thirds of malarial deaths occurring in this age group. And again, Sub-Saharan Africa has 93% of the cases and almost the same proportion of deaths from the disease. 
Malaria is a vector-borne disease that is rapidly life-threatening, especially in younger age groups. It transmits plasmodium parasites from an infected host to another through the bite of the Anopheles mosquito, the female Anopheles mosquito. There are five parasite species that have been described, but Plasmodium falciparum is the most deadly of them and is highly prevalent in Nigeria and across the world. The gametocytes are ingested by the Anopheles mosquito during another blood meal. And within the mosquito, the gametocytes develop and eventually become oocysts that rupture and provide, produce sporozoids. And the sporozoids are de delivered through the salivary gland of the mosquito as it infects another host during the next blood meal. And the cycle gets perpetuated through the community as the mosquitoes that are infected go from host to. Uh, um. There are other means by which malaria can be transmitted, including blood transfusion, transplacenta transmission from a pregnant mother to a fetus, resulting in congenital malaria, transferred through contaminated needles sharing, and organ transplant. The incubation period lasts about 10 to 15 days and presents the classic symptoms of high fever, headache, and chills or rigors. If it's left untreated, malaria can rapidly progress to severe illness and death. So how do we manage malaria? Early diagnosis and treatment is really critical. The WHO recommends that all cases of suspected malaria be confirmed by testing before treatment has begun. Microscopy used to be the mainstay, but now there's rapid diagnostic testing that's available as well. We do recognize that um, diagnostic testing may not always be available. In the event that it's impossible to get that done within a two hour period, empiric treatment is recommended. And we all know about the multi-drug resistance that's prevalent against falciparum malaria. And the best available treatment currently is the artemisinin-based combination therapy that is readily available all across Sub-Saharan Africa. What are the complications of malaria, especially in children who are non-immune? Cerebral malaria is a major complication that can rapidly result in death. Hypoglycemia could be a result of the disease itself or it could arise as part of the treatment complications from cerebral malaria. Severe anemia, especially in patients who already have underlying um, baseline um, anemia or who have hemoglobinopathies, they become even more susceptible to organ failure including renal failure and circulatory collapse. Malaria is highly preventable. A lot of focus has been on vector control, preventing the bite of the mosquito, using insecticide-treated mosquito net, as well as indoor residual spraying. Chemoprophylaxis for non-immune and special populations like patients with um, Hemoglobinopathies or other immune compromised population has been recommended as well. Lastly, 
and I'm really excited about this, is the malaria vaccine. The RTSS is the first and only vaccine to date that's been shown to have any significant impact in reducing malaria transmission in young African children. It'll be exciting to see the promise that that holds over time as additional trials continue to go on in different parts of Sub-Saharan Africa. Now we're going to move to the next disease condition, which will be pneumonia and diarrhea. And you'll see the reason why we're talking about pneumonia and diarrhea together in a few minutes. Given some background statistics, about 19,000 children under the age of five die every day, and about almost 30% of these children die from pneumonia and diarrheal illnesses. Before the age of two, it's the most likely time that these children would succumb to the disease, and about 80% of them will die from pneumonia, and almost three quarters of them from diarrhea. Both of these illnesses are highly preventable and curable. Now we're going to arrive in the next country, which is Guatemala. I had the opportunity to go to Guatemala with the LUCOM team in 2016 for a short medical mission trip. We were in Zacapa, and while there, as part of the medical team, I evaluated a four-month-old who had a similar presentation to this, this child I'm going to show you in this video. If you observe closely, this child is not very responsive. This is a, this is a very ill-appearing child with severe respiratory distress, with significant. So this table illustrates for us the most common etiologic agents that are responsible for pneumonia in children and the impact they have on mortality and morbidity. Streptococcus pneumoniae remains top in causing severe illness as well as mortality in children under five. Haemophilus influenza type B is, an, is the next one in terms of proportion of mortality. And the influenza virus is another infectious agent that is significant cause of death in children under five. All those three um, infectious agents are vaccine preventable. Other agents that play a role but not nearly as significant as this top three will be Staphylococcus aureus as well as non-typhoidal salmonella. We're going to look at other etiologic agents as well and I want to pay attention especially to Klebsiella because it has a higher incidence among children who are undernourished as well as newborn period. And the other one I want to draw your attention to is the Mycobacterium tuberculosis, which is especially important in HIV positive children. Let's take a closer look at pneumococcal pneumonia. It arises from droplet transmission from person to person that tends to occur during the dry season or winter months. The nasopharyngeal carriage rates is so widely different between children who are in resource-limited countries. It's almost a universal carriage rate 
compared to those who are in industrialized countries. Streptococcus pneumoniae gains access to the trachea and lower respiratory tract, typically from the compromise that's occurred already from a viral upper respiratory infection. Alternatively, it can gain access to the lungs by direct seeding during the bacteremic episode. Once in the lungs, the organism proliferates and gets into the alveoli and generates inflammatory response in the local pulmonary area resulting in consolidation and other clinical presentations that the children would, would accessory muscle use, retractions, otherwise called chest in drawing. So you, I know what your diagnosis is already on this child. This child has a severe pneumonia, ocular disease in children, This table gives you information about the dosage of amoxicillin and according to age group and duration of treatment. The complications and long-term effects from pneumonia are varied, but the most common and most concerning will be reduction in lung volume. And the more severe the pneumonia, the higher the likelihood of developing long-term sequelae of pneumonia infection. Now we're going to transition. Our next destination is all the way on the other side of the globe in the Kingdom of Cambodia. I had the privilege to work with amazing community health workers in Cambodia as I served as a child survival specialist for world relief between 2004 and 2006. So let's see what we have here. We have this little girl that's been examined by the community health worker. And let's imagine that this is a picture that the community health worker sent to you to seek your advice on how to take care of this child. The history that the mom gave is two days of watery diarrhea, and today, profuse vomiting and inability to take oral fluids. When you see the picture that the, um, the healthcare worker has sent to you, you are wanting to take note of the increased skin tugger that the healthcare worker wants you to note. So this is a patient with severe dehydration from diarrheal illness. Rotavirus remains the most common cause of severe and fatal diarrhea worldwide, accounting for over, over a quarter 
of severe cases as well as fatal cases. While we know rotavirus, it's important to not forget um, vibrio cholerae and to be familiar with the rice water stool that's characteristic of vibrio cholerae and to be prompt in making the diagnosis and providing fluid replacement for these children. But diarrhea is, arises from direct invasion of the epithelial lining by microbial agents, and that disrupts the absorption that should occur across the, across the epithelium and increase fluid loss through the lumen. So when you have increased fluid loss and inadequate oral intake, it becomes a situation of negative fluid balance with ultimate dehydration and electrolyte. This table is the guide that the WHO has provided to be used widely by community health workers and other healthcare workers in resource limited um, communities to assess for dehydration, the degree of dehydration, and to know the next steps to take. The most important thing I want to highlight here is the importance of oral hydration, using the oral rehydration solution, especially when a child has some degree of dehydration. While seeking care at the hospital, it's important to provide oral rehydration to the child as best as possible before IV access can be achieved. Long-term, if a child does not have, does not succumb to dehydration in the acute phase, the more episodes of diarrhea that a child has, the more likely they are to be stunted and to be undernourished. So when we come to the management of pneumonia and diarrhea, like I highlighted before, because they share a lot of risk factors, the management of childhood illnesses, the approach has been an integrated approach. So you find that integrated management of childhood illnesses, IMCI, is still widely used and be found to be effective. And specifically, there's been community case management separated for pneumonia, diarrhea, and malaria for patients under five years of age. The integrated approach to management has been applied, especially to pneumonia and diarrhea, given the shared risk factors. Again, early diagnosis and prompt treatment is critical for survival. Low-cost interventions are very important, including oral rehydration salts and zinc for diarrhea. Access to cotrimoxazole or amoxicillin, which are the first-line antibiotics for pneumonia, are also important steps to take. This is a quote from a WHO publication, and I think it aptly describes the majority of conditions that we'll be discussing in this session. Quote, children who are poor, hungry, and living in remote areas are most likely to suffer from, quote, forgotten killers and the burden that pneumonia and diarrhea places on their families and on the health system. End of quote. Now we're going to go back to Sub-Saharan Africa, to beautiful Rwanda. Again, as child survivor specialists, I got the opportunity to go to Kigali and Changugu, working with community health workers in the remote, remotest parts of the nation. So while we were there, we have this young man, he's very sick appearing. He was brought in by his mother because he had developed a fever over the last two days and has been complaining of headache. And now he's not very, he's not very interested in anything that the mom is offering him to eat and he does not want to play. 
when you interact with him, the only thing he says is that his neck hurts. Significant history that the mom provided is that they had just returned from visiting her family in neighborhood Democratic Republic of Congo. What is going through your mind with this child? I would agree with you. Meningococcal meningitis. Why would we think of meningococcal meningitis in this particular child? Because Democratic Republic of Congo borders Rwanda and, it fall, and Democratic Republic of Congo falls within the meningitis belt. Season, which is a season of epidemics related to meningococcal meningitis. About 30,000 cases of Neisseria meningitis infection are reported every year in this region. It cuts across the entire continent and it affects about 26 countries in this region. When we look at the transmission of the disease, it tends to be seasonal. When it's dry and the dust winds is cold at night, all of these are insults to the natural protective barrier in the upper respiratory tract that increases the risk of transmission of the disease. When there are large gatherings that result in overcrowding, it's the perfect combination for the disease to be transmitted from person to person. A patient exhibits the most common symptoms, the high fever, the, the pain in the neck. When you examine, you find nuchal rigidity. It's complaint of headache. There might be vomiting. In a younger child, especially in an infant, where the symptoms may be a little more difficult to elicit his, by history, your physical exam becomes even more important. And um, Finding a bulging anterior fontanelle in a child with a fever with the, the timing of the year becomes very critical in the determination to treat aggressively. When the meningococcal disease produces septicemia, it can result in rapid circulatory collapse with a characteristic the child in this picture exhibits the classic hemorrhagic rash associated with meningococcemia. And when untreated, fatality is as high as 50%. And even with early treatment and with early diagnosis and treatment, up to 15% of the patients will die within the onset of symptoms. For those who survive, up to 20% of them would develop severe sequelae of the Because of the high fatality rate associated with this disease and rapid fatality, meningococcal meningitis is an emergency that requires inpatient care. Within that, rapid antibiotic use, droplet precautions, it would be ideal to get a lumbar puncture done before antibiotics are instituted, but this should not delay onset of treatment. Meningococcal meningitis can be prevented in household contacts by giving chemoprophylaxis, rifampine in children, and ciprofloxacin in adults. And vaccination is available to prevent the disease. Another good news here is that in 2010, the meningococcal A conjugate vaccine was introduced in Africa for those under 30 years of age. And the most recent report is the 58% decline in meningitis incidence has been observed, which is such a breath of fresh air. Now we're going to move again to the continent of Asia. You're probably wondering, where are we going next? Well, we have just arrived in India. I have not personally been to India, but I am looking forward to going to India someday. So who do we have here? We have a very young mother 
who was taking care of her very emaciated child is, is uh, exhibiting features of severe wasting. So the next topic we're going to be looking at is malnutrition. We know that malnutrition covers both spectrum of overnutrition and undernutrition. And in this, this pie chart shows the significant impact that malnutrition has as an underlying factor in all the, the common diseases that cause death in children. In about 54% of cases, malnutrition is an underlying factor. In 2019 alone, around the world, 144 million children under age five years of age were reported to be stunted. Almost 50 million were reported as wasted and another 14 million considered severely wasted. We're gonna focus, like I said, on the undernutrition side of malnutrition. I want to draw your attention to this, this, this particular part of this infographic, and that's at the bottom right corner that talks about a child that is wasted is 11 times more likely to die than a healthy child. So we're talking about 60, over 60 million children around the world at such significant risk of death because of their undernourished state. This picture walks us through how undernutrition under impacts um, infectious disease and how the cycle goes on. It's a vicious cycle, fortunately. So a child that's already undernourished has a decreased immunity that increases that child's risk of disease. And of course, that increases the incidence of infectious diseases in that child. Because the immunity is compromised, they get more severe illness, and it takes a much longer time for them to recover from the illness. And ultimately, the risk of death significantly increases from the infographic up to 11 times, depending on the degree of wasting that they have. Infectious disease on the, uh, in its own way decreases the appetite of the child, decreases the ability to absorb nutrients, especially when we think of diarrheal diseases. While they have increased calorie demand to fight the infection, and of course, the increased energy needs make them to divert that energy to fight infection, which further worsens the state of undernutrition and the cycle continues. So at some point, we need to break that cycle so that these children have a higher chance of making it. Now we are back to Southern Africa. Guess where? This is Malawi. I was in Lilongwe and some other um, smaller villages far away from Lilongwe when I was working with World Relief as a child survivor specialist. I had the opportunity to work with some of the most dedicated people that you'll ever find. What are we going to do in Malawi? We're going to see what this healthcare worker is able to do with this young mother. I want to draw your attention to a small detail here. For those of you who may not know this mom, this is not... <laughs> A hairstyle that is prevalent. This is a sign that she didn't get a chance to finish getting her hair fixed before labor pains hit and she delivered the baby prematurely, unexpectedly. So she has half braid and the rest of her hair is not yet completed. Now she has a baby. The baby is evidently premature and this healthcare worker is trying to work with this young mother to ensure that this child has a chance at surviving beyond the first 28 days of life. In certain settings, you might not have an incubator. And so the kangaroo style is what this um, healthcare worker is instituting here, and it could be indeed a lifesaver. So we're gonna be focusing on neonatal diseases for the next couple slides.
Let's look at some statistics. Thankfully, the number of neonatal deaths that have occurred, be that occurred between 1990 and 2019 have literally been halved, but we still have so many deaths, especially in the first 28 days of life. Three quarters of those, those deaths in 2019 occurred in the first week of life, and a third occurred in the first 24 hours of, of life. This is a very critical period. It's important that the mothers are equipped and healthcare workers are equipped to take care of those newborns. Of course, that translates into prenatal care as well. Again, when you look at when we look at sub-Saharan Africa statistics, the neonatal mortality rate is as high as 27 deaths per thousand life births. So you see that it's a long, a lot of work that we need to go in over the next five years for this number to go down from 27 to as low as 15, according to SDGs. In Central and Southern Asia, it is 24 deaths per thousand life births, just from 2019 data. This is a staggering and sobering um, statistic that uh, a child born in those two regions with, uh, with the highest neonatal mortality rate is 10 times more likely to die in the first month of birth than a child that's born in a high-income country. So what are the leading causes of death in that, in that um, time period? Premature birth is one of the top ones. Intrapartum-related complications, infections, that's the third one. My slides got a little issue there. As well as birth defects. Birth defects, congenital anomalies, those are fixed and maybe more difficult to, um, to prevent. Even though we know that folic acid supplementation goes a long way in preventing neural tube defects, that is not the only um, birth defect that occurs. But all the other ones, premature birth, infections, intrapartum-related complications, are largely preventable and curable. So we do know that when you have midwife-led continu midwife continuity of care available to mothers, to pregnant women, they have a 16% less likely chance of neonatal death and 24% likely chance to have a preterm delivery. So this needs to, there needs to be a significant investment in ensuring that there's adequate access to quality prenatal care, attendance at birth by skilled midwives who will provide good quality postnatal care for the mother and the baby and identify those kids, those newborns that are sick and need additional care. So what are those danger signs that the healthcare worker needs to be aware of? This is a long list of all of them. The two that I want to draw attention to are the temperature. A lot of healthcare workers are familiar with a higher temperature being an indication for illness, but not so much a hypothermic baby. So it will be important in educating healthcare workers, especially community-based healthcare workers, the hypothermia is just as dangerous as a worker. The next two slides are resource slides that you feel free to use in your training and equipping the staff that you're going to be working with. In taking care of newborns, the first two, the last two slides talked about the newborn that's sick. And this slide highlights what every newborn needs to have as they're being cared for. So now we're going to transition to some of the tips that I want to share when you're looking at developing treatment protocols that are evidence-based when you're working with teams in your, in your communities. Often local data 
is unavailable. When that is not, uh, not available, go to the region or the national data to get information that will be helpful for you in determining what needs to be taken, what needs to be tackled. There's no need to reinvent the wheel, is my opinion. I think you get a whole lot more done if you adapt existing protocols to your local needs, to be sensitive to the culture and use appropriate language, develop a team that will be that you will train, who will then train others. And I've come to be a, a strong believer of the mantra, see one, do one, teach one. Keep things simple. I know that it tends to be overwhelming, the needs that you find in the communities and wanting to tackle too many things at the same time. Just go one task at a time, one issue at a time, but never go it alone. Partnership will get you a whole lot more done. It's a popular African saying that if you wanna go fast, go alone. But if you wanna go far, you need to go with a team. These are some resources that I think will, you'll find very useful, all developed by the, by the WHO. They're all free, available on the internet that you can use to prepare yourself and to train your team. Now I come to the final part of this um, presentation. And this is something that is really close and dear to my heart. I dare to quote this audacious saying that I saw in a Bangladeshi study that maternal education is the single most significant determinant of child health. When we look at education, I don't want us to just focus on schooling. While schooling is important, there are other informal ways of making education available to women that results in the empowerment. If we look at just education, a lot of studies have revealed that just attendance at primary education, not even finishing, is associated with a 28% reduction in the odds of an infant dying compared to a mother that has no education at all. And the reduction is even more staggering when they have secondary education. But moving away, from just schooling, I'm talking of just about literacy, literacy in health, especially what the media allows mothers to be exposed to, knowledge of the mother about vaccines, about contraceptives, about use of medications and diseases has a huge impact on the outcome of the child. If you look at education alone, Every additional year of education resulted in decline in the probability of a child dying before five years of age as much as 10% or up to 16%. These are studies that are reported in Malawi and Uganda as recently as 2019. So it is really important that we invest in providing knowledge about health to the mother because it's been found that even when we control for level of education, literacy skills, media exposure, that the mother having knowledge of health situations and what to do, how to access health for herself, health services for herself and the child, is a significant predictor in child survival. So I just want to bring this, uh, this tool into your hands. This is the care group difference is a manual that was produced by the World Relief to highlight the care group difference. Care groups are community-based groups that involve women that have been implemented in Cambodia, Malawi, and other countries in Africa that, um, that showcases how much uh, investing in maternal health knowledge makes a difference in child survival. The links here available that you can use to access this tool, it is available for you. So what are the take home messages as we wrap up to this session? Majority of the global leading causes of death in children under five are curable and absolutely preventable. 
An integrated approach is critical if we're going to be successful at it. We must invest in improving maternal health knowledge if we're going to achieve the SDGs that we have stated. Let's do everything we can to protect, prevent, and treat as we fulfill the desire of Jesus that it is not the will of our Father in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Thank you so much for your time and God bless.